Welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I'm Ben Fell, and together we're going to look at the funny side of psychology using the power of magnets. That's right, we are looking this week at how we look at the brain. And if you like recursion and infinite fractal loops, then you'll love our first comment of the feedback section. Um, Glenn, a.k.a. Glennibun, uh, a.k.a. someone with a name called Glenn and then a surname that begins with B, I think, uh, pointed out on uh, how mental imagery actually AKA works. A.k.a. meaty gunshot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I am looking forward to the bit in a few years time when i get made master because then i'm halfway to completing my uh, rap title <laughs> uh, you just have to find out some way of being officially given the title meaty gunshot <laughs> it's tricky but i i think you can do it if you set your mind to it well you're already smug so that's going okay then uh yes glenn said uh, this podcast oh, has so this podcast has given me a lot to think about with my mind's mind uh so thanks glenn that did tickle me quite a lot <laughs> Uh, incidentally, we talked about a lot of things about history and about ethnicity on the last podcast. Uh, if you're interested in seeing a running commentary on that and how I made some inaccuracies, do follow Clarky the Cruel, aka Kiha, on uh, Twitter. Because he points out that the Japanese occupation of Korea goes back to 1910. And <laughs> asks some interesting questions about whether the darkness studies have been done with uh, regional accents in the UK. Mm-hmm. Or uh, using phone conversations where obviously you can't see the person, the stimulus. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that then, but I figured... Um, I, to be honest, I don't think there's a huge amount of research on sort of like prejudicial attitudes based on... Uh, accents um, partly because it's a little bit difficult to control and partly because in the nicest possible way there are perhaps more severe cases of prejudice in the world than against say northerners um interesting though interesting and it's nice to see that we're collecting some uh we're we're gathering some uh pedantic listeners because oh yeah (laughs) the internet def if you're on the internet you should have a a staunch following of pedants so thank you (laughs) yep yes uh so yes do that actually and listen to his podcast dissecting worlds Mm -hmm. re-dissecting worlds uh Jack Randall wrote in to say, Hey guys, love the show. Found you via Dissecting Worlds. I used to hate psychology, but you guys have converted me. (laughs) So that's pretty good. Uh, Thanks, Jack. That makes us feel pretty pleased with ourselves, if we're honest. Uh, And the dark side. We have machines that go beep. uh, Yeah, more on beeps later. (laughs) (laughs) More on said machines. Yeah, the the point is, it's kind of our, our mission in life to make people enjoy psychology. Because mm. we did, uh, uh, most of the time, anyway. Uh, I won't mention we did, deception. <laughs> let's let's not. Thinking of stealing people from other um, podcasts, uh, Amanda Jorda, uh, famed overthinker, uh, is said uh, that she was listening to the Psychomedia podcast for days on end because she does <laughs> some kind of graphic design thing, and so uh, ah. she uh, likes to listen to podcasts while she works uh, because uh, there isn't any more of the TFT spin-off podcast from overthinking it to uh, listen to uh spoiler warning freud dies um <laughs> actually you don't get a spoiler warning in that show it's just freud dies they open the first episode <laughs> of uh every show with a major spoiler usually for a show they're not going to discuss um <laughs> and uh yeah um 
the the Grampus, aka Matt, also from Dissecting Worlds, did point out that it's great to have a podcast that can combine Tangled and Avenue Q in the same episode. <laughs> Uh, finally, we received a podcast review. Actually, I've sent off to a proper review site to see if they'll review us. Haven't heard back yet. Um, huh. But uh, from uh, my good friend and pod mistress, Max Barnard, he said of the Psychomedia podcast when reviewing the seven uh, podcasts that you can always count on, I am not an intelligent man. Everything I know can be written on a teaspoon. So it's always good to have the intelligent and humorous efforts of Ben Fell and Timothy Swan. For through them, I can pretend to be at least half as smart as them. From the horrors of Phineas Gage to the horrors of the sensory homunculus and all the way to the horrors of Tim's DC Online character, <laughs> there's a lot to learn about. And when it's from chaps this handsome and brawny, well, you're in for a good time. And it is oh. worth noni- noting when Max calls you handsome, that is that is serious business. Well, I am, I am deeply fa- flattered and fattered. Um, <laughs> a few things. One, I agree completely. His DC Universe character is truly horrific and secondly i think you're, if you're intelligent enough to write on the back of a spoon then uh, you you are pretty intelligent and significantly more intelligent than either of us i'm not sure either of us could actually hold a spoon long enough to write on <laughs> um uh, so, so uh, that yeah, was a very end, lovely review end of my internet feedback ben have people been giving you feedback in real life again <laughs> yeah i like that this is how it's diverging because it means i get more like face-to-face interactions with human beings um but anyway, uh, yes, so uh, this weekend just gone, uh, one of our old friends from uh, the heady days of our undergraduate years um, came up to Oxford and we had a catch up and a chat and several drinks. Um, and she mentioned that she has been listening to the podcast. Um, her name is Mira. Uh, she did, like, she was in our college, so she is one of the four uh, Corpus Christi psychologists in our year. Okay, um, I would I would say that there is of course the the fifth secret one. It's a bit like the uh, like uh, the Green Ranger or whatever in Power Rangers. That is, that is um, technically true. And we all we all were scholars, so that was kind of we were like yeah. the ultimate subject in our college. We were. This is true. Um, so yeah, she came up to Oxford. Incidentally, she came up to Oxford for the purpose of graduating, uh, bearing in mind that she will have finished her degree uh, in sort of mid two thousand and ten. And it's now late 2012, nearly 2012. We want to get Mira on the show. Have, did you manage to do any persuasive work? <laughs> well, I did, actually. I mean, she's, she was very positive about the podcast. She said she added her name to the list of people who find it soothing. I noticed they all seem to be female so far. I guess it's just our, our dulcet masculine tones. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm not using my powers as well as I could. <laughs> I should run a sleep clinic. Um uh, yes, that is obviously where that thought goes. Uh, <laughs> she uh, she said particularly, actually, she said she really enjoyed the first episode, um, specifically because it was like having me and Tim wittering in, away in the background, like when we were students together. But she was concerned that other people would just find it irritating. <laughs> um, I'm slightly paraphrasing there. She was very nice about it. Um, and she did say also that subsequent to that first wittery episode, she thought that the episodes have been getting better and better. Um She also said, uh, in reference to your point, that she would be happy to come on as a guest uh, for the right topic. Um, Specifically, I mean, she's she's working in uh, clinical psychology a bit at the moment. So I thought that might be an interesting thing. But she was a little bit concerned that, you know, making jokes out of serious medical conditions um, would be a little bit 
off. I tried to assure her that that was what we did every week, but <laughs> she wasn't entirely convinced. It's, um, it's all dependent on the incidents, really. We're quite happy is. to make jokes yeah. about like brokers aphasia, and I'm sure I'll do something on Declarimbos where there's about three extant cases. If it's about like <laughs> depression or schizophrenia, like the incidence yeah. is just too high for it to be funny. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I mean, the thought that I had, she apparently does a lot of work using like the modern variant of um, psychoanalysis. Ooh. Uh, or psychotherapy. I can't remember which one of those it was. One okay, is, psychotherapy is a more general term. Yeah, I, but I think it was, it's sort of like where um, Freudian stuff has sort of ended up. Okay, uh, when they started actually doing some experiments and that. Well, I'm not entirely sure. I, it sounded very interesting, and I thought that we could actually, that, that might be a good one to do when we inevitably confront the, the Freudian bugbear. Yeah, yeah, not very much so. The bugbear of, of anyway, um, a Freudian bugbear would be... I don't know what that would be. But anyway. Yeah, don't um, think about so, it too hard. It's <laughs> two Lloyd images there. Um, anyway, so this is good. This is positive news. Thank you, Mira, for the feedback. It was lovely to see you. It was a crying shame that uh, some people were just too busy to come down and, and meet up and say hi and, you know, have fun together. But well, I know they... If you they want to work life. for four, four <laughs> hours, uh, maybe it was actually three because his dad came to pick him up with someone with autism... Uh, having already walked, worked uh, a long shift the day before, well, not that long, but by my stands, a long shift the day before, and <laughs> then travel to Oxford, and then travel it. back, then you can. I'm sleepy. I worked a long time yesterday. It was about 10 hours yesterday. It's not Dead. right for me. <laughs> <laughs> Never a true word spoke. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, so I think that's the sum total of the feedback anyway. Uh, yes, quickly before we move on to what we've done this week, a quick damn you herring update, because apparently this is going to be a weekly feature. <laughs> uh, last week before the show, uh, I asked Ben if I could uh, slot in a bit of stand-up about the uh, glamour model Lucy Pindar. Actually, I put in Pindar as in the famed Greek lyric poet and glamour model. Uh, it's Lucy Pindar. Uh, about 33% of my stand-up seems to be about glamour models. I'm quite concerned about that. And Ben said, would it really fit in the tone of the show and the rest of it? And we agreed that it probably wasn't a good time to do it. But oh, no. that very week... What did Herring do on his Radio 4 show? That's right, he had a thing about glamour models and interviewed said Lucy Pindar and made some jokes about her. Well, I'm sorry that I didn't have my precognition turned on. <laughs> uh, I still maintain that it would have been out of place, and I think you're lowering yourself to the level of our nemesis, uh, or nemesis in that case, Herring. But because you know we have oh, we have higher things. Whether to I had done it or not, I would be saying "damn you, Herring." Because even if I had, you know, I've got this stand-up written, he gets to actually say the jokes to her face. Well, you know, face anyway. <laughs> let's let's quickly uh, go to the point where I ask the standard question, Ben. What film have you watched this week? Uh, I, I'm dreading the week when I forget to watch a film. Thankfully, it's not <laughs> happened yet. Um, so this week, I watched a film called 30 Minutes or Less. Um, it is with... Uh, How long is it? Uh, significantly more than 30 minutes, actually. Um, it's starring uh, Jesse, Sarah, or Michael Eisenberg, or whichever one it is. Um, and it's directed by a guy called Ruben Fleischer, who uh, also directed one of my favourite films, Zombieland. Um, oh, yeah, of course. But based on the highly statistically inadequate sample of these two films, I can conclude that although it would be slightly harsh to call Ruben Fleischer a one-trick pony, um, he is definitely a pony whose pimp has yet to find him a second client. Um, 
And yes, that was just me insinuating that the director of Zombieland is an equine prostitute. I regret nothing. <laughs> the, the conclusion being that they were quite similar films, one with zombies and the other with a bomb. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, very good. Does uh, does a certain uh, star of Ghostbusters turn up in the latter half of the film and then is a bomb? Tragic. Is that no. how it goes? It had neither Bill Murray nor Woody Harrelson, so was necessarily a a less good film. But it was still enjoyable. It was still enjoyable. Incidentally, wouldn't it be great to have a zombie version of Cheers? You know, where everybody wants your brains. Dum 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 dum. <laughs> Those playing the drinking game, Tim has just sung drink. Oh, I've got another bit of singing scheduled in for later. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Prepare the shots, guys. <laughs> yeah, shots is about the only way you can make it feel better. So what did you do this week then, Tim? Uh, what did I do this week? Well, as I said, I had a, I had a job, but that's not so... Well, it's kind of interesting, but it's a one barred by confidentiality and it's too not that interesting. What I did do was, because I thought I had uh, Monday off, and... To a great extent, I did. I went on the Overthink It podcast with its interesting time zones. Um, <laughs> we eventually worked out what time I should be on. Uh, and we talked a bit about the Muppets movie coming out in February here. So uh, I read so, a quick yeah. synopsis of that. The, uh, the fact that it's coming out in February here, I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks. I'm really hoping I can catch it there. Oh, yeah. New York has cinemas that run things for so long. You'll definitely find one that can do it. Here's hoping. Also, um, um, a pretty obvious of you going to New York. Uh, um, also, Australia, going somewhere else actually. then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you ought to mention it. Uh, just, yeah. Well, I, I, How many hours different is that? Because I hate podcasting across time zones. It makes me so tired. <laughs> well, I, I, I will do the noble thing and, and be up at ridiculous times. In both cases, I'm only going to them for a week. One... Um, is uh, with the girlfriend, and the other is for a summer school. Um, the problem your is... other girlfriend, science, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I would love to do a podcast from each of those locations. One of them is, being a psychology summer school would be absolutely ideal. Um, the yeah, the uh, the the point to mention is that I have flown previously twice in my life, uh, oh. once to Glasgow and once to Jersey. Uh, oh right! You've I'm never not, left the UK. I've never left the UK by aeroplane. I have sure. never been further than whichever is furthest out of like Prague and Florence. Um, Ooh, so it's going to be quite close between those two. Um, I feel so, like a positive globe trotter now. I've never really experienced things like I don't know time zones or long haul. Hey, hey! I've been to another continent, Ben. We're going to do that. <laughs> Actually, by the end of this year, you will have more continents than me because I've only been to one other continent. But ah, well, by the end of this year, I shall win. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it's, that's a massive, massive deviation from the point. Uh, yeah, the point was I'll put the uh, uh, link in the uh, show notes because I went on to uh, talk about the Old Republic. We're not going to talk huge amounts about it, but I think Ben, you had one like specific thought because you've actually managed to play it, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I have. I have finally got in for a single solitary weekend and did actually manage to get some time. Um, I apologize. Like this has nothing to do with psychology, really. It's just like oh, everything has been majorly on, really. on our minds. This is true. Um, this is the excuse we use anyway. Um, <laughs> so we, we, me and Tim spent a fair amount of try, time, at least attempting to play together, and being particularly frustrated by the fact that whenever, because it's a, a, a game made by Bioware, there's a lot of like conversations with uh, like other characters in the game involved, and. Um, 
whenever we got into a conversation, one of us got into a conversation, the other one was just forced to sort of sit passively and watch. Whereas what you're supposed to do is like be able to sort of interactively have conversations. Um, to be fair, we did make some class choices that put us out of that. You were, yeah. you know, part of the upper crust and I was part of the middle class, <laughs> uh, basically. Uh, utterly unlike in life. Um, but yeah, so basically, uh, the, the way it's supposed to work is uh, in most Bioware games, you, you're kind of given the choice of how you uh, have conversations with other players. Basically, this generally boils down to three options, um, which can be neatly summarized as kiss ass, smart ass, or complete ass. Um, <laughs> So one option is generally like fawning, virtuous and needlessly sycophantic. One is... Hey, that's the one I play. <laughs> yes. One is snarky, sarcastic and unhelpful, which is the one I play. And one is counterproductively insulting, aggressive and mean. Um, and the most unfair about it is that the middle one, you don't get any bonuses. For. Yeah, exactly. You don't get like snark points. Um but previously these had only been like in single player games. And now they've had to deal with the fact that multiple people are trying to impose their particular will on a give any given conversation um and they solved this with the the universally uh, accepted role-playing style with a random dice roll um, <laughs> yeah which, i keep thinking can you get modifiers to it i want to level up my conversation skills just be the best conversationalist in the galaxy well i think you, you can for the final level of like whatever the star wars equivalent of oscar wilde is <laughs> I, I think you can um i really not sure exactly how but what it got me thinking about was that the whole like stony silence from one person while the other person does all the talking obviously reminded me of our tutorials as undergrads um, <laughs> and this may got me thinking that maybe we should have Im uh, implemented the bioware random dice roll system oh tutorials that's... so oh, like yeah. whenever the tutor asks us a question we each roll a little d6 and whoever scores the lowest has to answer um, and in that case, okay, you definitely you do it with a D6. Modified. Yeah, you come on, D20, man, D20 <laughs> all the way. That is true. In which case, I might have to modify this. But I reckon we should have modifiers like you know, Ben gains plus one preparation, Tim has <laughs> minus two sleep deprivation, Alexandra suffers from minus four relevance, that sort of thing. <laughs> You know, you've never actually said her name on the podcast before. Well, no, <laughs> so, this is a joke for me, Tim, and one other person. Well, no, I, a fair amount of our listeners are our contemporary psychologists, and so... That is true. Some of them... For back reference, it is Agent Taylor. <laughs> uh, this is true. One uh, of the lesser agents from The Matrix. If any of you... I don't think Taylor was ever in it. There was uh, Johnson, Jackson, Smith, Brown, I think Andrews. Um, and then there was Ow. Grey in uh, The Matrix Online. Anyway, well, uh, I like the show. So that is the sum total of things that we've done this week, um, which absolutely in no way segues into what we're talking about this week, which is um, the general principles of um, neuroimaging. So neuroimaging as a concept has kind of like emerged in the last relatively recently in psychology as a way of sort of non-invasively looking at people's brains and we've already always helpful to do things non-invasively with incidentally did you just invent a topic teleport <laughs> well, I, I was sort of sort of teleporting i was then going to refer back to what would have been my segue had i done it yet uh, okay <laughs> so we're getting we're getting messed up in the time streams again um 
Anyway, yeah, the, the segue that I would have used was that I, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I'm currently doing a course on uh, MR physics. So the physics behind fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, for which I have an exam coming up um, and also a practical session this afternoon where I actually get to go and play with an MRI scanner. Uh, which is kind of cool. Um, and so this was going to be like things that I am about to do in like a couple of hours, segueing into the first section. Um, I, I figured it would be kind of a good thing to talk about on the podcast because we mentioned these techniques quite a lot, particularly MRI and EEG. Uh, and we've covered things like TMS before. Don't worry, all the acronyms will be, uh, well, probably will be explained. Um, <laughs> so I thought it might be good to like explain a bit about them, particularly as I've been studying it for the past seven weeks and uh it's a good way of revising as i pointed out last week um i'm suspecting ulterior motives here <laughs> you don't need to suspect i've told you that i have ulterior <laughs> motives i'm using the podcast as a revision tool when it comes to my viva it. for my defil i will just be explaining my defil thesis to you all that is going to be a somewhat unfunny episode really it? <laughs> depends on what studies i end up carrying out um, yeah. Anyway, so um, I, th I figure we'll kick off with the big daddy of, of neuroimaging, which is fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, now, my preparation for this is partially drawn from uh, my notes from my course and partly drawn from Wikipedia. See if you Hooray! can guess best bits were drawn from each. Um, so start off with some like basic facts. The, the human brain is about 78% water, 12% lipids, 8% protein and 2% halloumi. Water, <laughs> lipids, and proteins are molecules which are made up of atoms, uh, which are in turn composed of subatomic particles such as protons and electrons. Uh, halloumi is a traditional Cypriot cheese made from a mixture of sheep and goat's milk. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, turns out. Um, so protons are the thing that we're really interested in. They are composite particles composed of two up quarks and one down quark. Um, this is not in any way relevant for fMRI, but I like talking about quarks because they're called quarks. Um, now, Incidentally, quark is also a type of uh, cheese. Oh, really? I, I thought it was a, uh, a small weasel-like South American mammal, but apparently not. It's um, not a character in Star Trek. <laughs> probably. Um, anyway, protons exhibit positive electric charge. Just to return to quarks, quarks exhibit various so-called flavor properties, apparently, mm -hmm. including charge and spin, which are relatively normal. Uh, they also have charm, strangeness, topness, and bottomness. Interestingly, charm, strangeness, topness, and bottomness are, coincidentally, all variables in the algorithm I use to calculate the predicted success of my romantic relationships. I was going to try and claim for uh, charm and strangeness, and I was <laughs> going to let the world decide about bottomness. Um, <laughs> we haven't uploaded too many pictures of us, so yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, back to protons. Um, Please. Protons exhibit spin, which complicatedly means that they spin um, and they're positively charged and this means that they generate tiny magnetic fields as anyone who has ever studied relatively basic physical know if you move a an electrically charged object it generates a magnetic field this means that if you put a lot of protons together in a strong like artificially induced magnetic field they'll align themselves with it a bit like if uh, you have like a bunch of iron filings at near a bar magnet all which is an inaccurate but useful analogy um so yeah if you're if they're in a magnetic field lots of protons will align with it 
And this is exactly what happens in an MRI machine. Um, or it's almost what happens in an MRI machine. I mean, that picture gives you the idea that all the protons in your brain, in all the like water and the um, lipids and everything, are all like standing to attention in rows in the direction of the magnetic field in an MRI scanner. What actually happens is that all the protons are spinning, you know, completely at random. And when they go in the scanner's magnetic field, they sort of exhibit a general tendency towards alignment. They're still moving randomly, but there's kind of a trend towards being in line with the magnetic field. Um, so so I, a bit like me walking in a straight line. A bit like you walking in a straight line. The, the analogy that I came up with was like the effect of people walk, walking past a bakery. Um, the Newtonian attractive force generated by the delicious bakery smell doesn't make every single person immediately like alter their trajectory and go in to buy a bun. But overall, there is a net tendency for more people to kind of move in the direction of the buns compared to if the bakery wasn't emitting the delicious bread smell. Um, have you had any cake this week, Tim? I had some cake yesterday, actually, for ah. dinner. A little bit, little bit of carrot cake. Because uh, otherwise, you would be in a lot of trouble for mentioning cake... <laughs> uh, I, well, I've kind of it's turned on myself because I haven't had breakfast yet, and I really want a bun now. Um, <laughs> there, there was another analogy given by my my lecturer for the MRI course, which was that it's like putting 100 compasses in a washing machine. Um, <laughs> they'll all be pointing in different directions, but there will still be a slight tendency of them to point north. Um, That's an amazing one. It's a really good analogy. Um, so anyway, back to the scanner. So what happens is you put your person in this giant electromagnet and all the protons in their brain line up a bit. Um, this isn't actually particularly good for scanning because the protons aren't really doing anything interesting at this point. So what you do is you introduce a second magnetic field, um, which you oscillate it, you waggle it about at a particular frequency. And by kind of introducing this second magnetic field, you knock the protons out of alignment with the main magnetic field. Um, and this process is called excitation because you're exciting them away from alignment with the main magnetic field. Um, because the protons aren't, aren't stationary, because they're spinning, you have to kind of oscillate the, the second magnetic field at just the right frequency so you can flip them away from the main one. Um, and that's kind of, it's, it's basically resonance, um, which physicists may have come across before. Um, the resonant frequency of protons in this case is referred to as the Lama frequency, not to be confused with the Lama frequency, which is the oscillatory period of a magnetic field needed to cause a Lama to flip upside down, um, which incidentally is used in Peru for rapidly unloading baggage from Lamas. Um, <coughs> anyway, so you, <laughs> uh, you introduce this second oscillating magnetic field um, and flip the protons in your subject's brain away from alignment with the main magnetic field. And then once you, once that happens, the, the protons will then gradually return back to alignment. They'll kind of like a, like a clock going back towards, towards 12, they'll, they'll slide back into position. And the rate at which they return to alignment uh, depends on you know the molecular structure that the proton is in so whether it's say in water or uh, what the density of the water is or whether it's in lipids and all this sort of thing um, and because the protons are moving back towards alignment they are electrically charged particles moving they generate little magnetic fields so you stick another coil next to the person's head and measure these these net sort of magnetic fields generated by these protons and by sort of judging their rate as they go back you can tell differences in 
molecular structure in the brain. Um, which is the basic principle. This is ridiculously oversimplified because it would take a stupid amount of time to explain it um, in actual detail. And frankly, few of you really need to know how MRI imaging works. To be honest, I don't really need to know how MRI <laughs> imaging works. I just need, need to know what to tell the physicist if I ever end up using it. Um, the final point is that that is kind of where MR spectroscopy was 20-ish years ago, I think, um, when it was mainly used for, like, chemical analysis. Um, the way you... That won't actually give you, like, the nice, pretty uh, 3D or 2D images you get from... MRI scanners. Uh, the way you do that, um, because everything in uh, magnetic resonance is solved by adding more magnets, uh, <laughs> you add more magnets, specifically what are called magnetic gradients, which are uh, magnetic fields which vary in intensity across the area of your subject's brain. So they will be, uh, like, say, strongest at the top of the brain uh, or, or at the front of the brain and weakest at the back of the brain. Uh, this means that some, the protons in, um, like at the ends of the gradient, will be slightly off resonant. They won't be um, receiving exactly the llama frequency that I mentioned earlier. Um, so you get slightly different out, like magnetic signal outputs from those to the ones that are in the middle of the gradient. And this means that when you collect together all of the signals from all of these slightly variable um, protons, you um, you can use them basically what is essentially like maths magic. It's called Fourier analysis. Um, and I'd rather have learnt magic to be fair. You uh, you apply these magnetic gradients. You get uh, this messy signal out. You apply Fourier analysis to it, and then you get a nice shiny uh, picture of the brain. Uh, incidentally, uh, a Fourier is also the name of someone who makes anthropomorphic fox costumes for niche internet communities. Really? Oh, <laughs> I really thought that that was true. <laughs> this is this is the way you do it. You you inter intersperse random lies between the facts, and some of them will slip through unnoticed. Anyway, so that's basically and probably slightly inaccurately how MRI works in an extremely large nutshell. Um, the thing that is particularly fun, at least or at least funny. Um, for us, not being in MRI scanners right now, is that uh, it's a potentially quite a strange experience. Partially, I mean, a lot of people get quite antsy about going into uh, an MRI scanner uh, with some justification. I mean, the applying these, these gradient magnets, they have to kind of go on and off and on and off, which requires an awful lot of power to sort of turn on these giant electromagnets, which makes a deafening noise. So you have to wear headphones whenever you're going to the scanner. Um, moving your head at all if you're being scanned can completely ruin the image. So you generally are clamped in. Um, just to give you a sense of how strong the, the main magnetic field, the main kind of, the main magnet is, uh, the smallest MRI scanners are, a, well, except the ones they use for mice, um, which apparently are a thing. Um, oh, wow. I've seen, there's a pic, I saw a picture of them the other day and it is, it is literally just like some bits of copper strapped to a little, a little piece of string, not piece of string, like a bit of wire wrapped around a mouse's head. It looks I, like, I think you can get like that for your Sylvanian family set. These days. <laughs> Sylvanian brain damage set. Um, 
anyway, yeah. So the the smallest one used uh, scanner used on humans is one point five Teslas, uh, which is strong enough to pick up a car. That's the size of magnet they use in like junkyards. Um, most one most scanners used these days are three Teslas, um, so twice as strong as that. Uh- I was just realising Sylvain, the Sylvanian fissure is actually a part of the brain. <laughs> Close. Weird coincidence. Nearly. So, yeah, the, it's the, the powerful Sylvia, magnets. Not Sylvanian, but anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Being utterly distracted by children's toys, as usual. Um, so, yeah, most medical scanners are three Teslas, which is really strong. Um, humans, obviously, not mostly composed of metal. So you're at least nominally fine to be in that size of magnetic field, apart from, you know, all the protons in your brain aligning which we don't think has any obvious medical consequences, but we still don't let pregnant women and young children into them, just in case. Um, oh, great. Uh, what is a problem is uh, if you've had anything in your body or on your body which contains any ferrous metals, um, people have gone into scanners not realising that they still have like shrapnel from wounds in them, and it gets ripped out violently. Um Apparently, what can happen is uh, if you have old tattoos that have got iron in the ink, it superheats them, uh, which is not very nice. Um, obviously, if anything metal is brought into the room with the scanner, it will immediately, you know, smash into the scanner. And partic- a particular problem which we heard about in a safety talk was that if you have anything that's kind of uh, elongated and tubular, because the magnet in an MRI scanner is a ring, you get essentially a railgun effect where you, 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 like if a gas canister goes, there was a picture on this safety talk of where a gas canister had been brought into an MRI room and been fired through the tube of the scanner out the other side and through about three walls. And there was just a shot through the middle of the scanner looking out, like outside the hospital where the gas canister had been fired out of the walls. It was fantastic. Can, can you get that photo? I want to put that photo. I'll, I'll see if I can find some uh, some photos of like horrific MRI structural damage. Um, yeah, less so superheated tattoos. That's not really that, fun. That's not great. I mean, obviously, the other problem with this is like MRI scanners are ridiculously expensive and very very fine tuned to set up, despite the giant size of the magnets involved. So having like an, a wheelchair or a Hoover or a gas canister honging into your extremely expensive electromagnet will completely screw it up um so bad things um the, interestingly that's not the only slight concern with mri um uh, and like you get some very strange effects because although at least nominally being in that strong magnetic field doesn't do anything particular to you it, it can have some slightly strange effects if you move too fast through the field you experience a kind of motion sickness um, okay. Now, this doesn't really happen in the 1.5 Teslas, but in the 3 Teslas, if you if you like run through the scanner room, you'll experience it. And they're just starting to bring in seven Tesla scanners um, for medical use. Um, they're just having a new one installed in the John Radcliffe ho- Hospital up the road. And apparently, if you like, if you move through the scanning room faster than like really slowly, you will get this very strong motion sickness. Um, people who are being scanned in the seven tesla scanner they they lie on a um the way you go into the scanner is you lie on a like a a trolley which is then moved into the coil Uh, this process in the seven tesla scanner takes two minutes um to move you from completely outside to completely inside because if you move 
any faster than that, you get this motion sickness. And the reason that you get it is because the magnetic field messes with the like the vestibular balance systems in your inner ear and right. screws them up, which is great. Um, finally, uh, the when they turn on and off the the gradient fields, uh, the gradient magnets. Um, they tend to sort of go on and off and on and off to get different kind of scanning patterns. Um, if you do this too fast, because they're quite strong magnetic fields, again, you can get what's called peripheral nerve stimulation, which right. is basically where the oscillating magnetic field induces a current in the nerves in your arms. Um, and basically your fingers start twitching uncontrollably. Um, but it's still safe, honest. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's some of the fun things that can happen in MRI, and possibly the reason why they still don't let pregnant mothers or young children be scanned. Um, yeah, you don't want your fetus to like twitch because <laughs> it's being electrically stimulated and kick in the midst of a scan. Like that's going to put your results right off. I think. Well, yeah, there is that. I think the main problem is that you know a lot of quite sensitive things go on during like brain development involving quite look, sm- sensitive thing molecular processes and they don't really want to just like completely ruin the development of your unborn child Um, thinking of magnet stimulating things (laughs) okay (laughs) um so uh yeah um what that's that's mri basically i was going to try and find some uh like example studies using mri but the fact is a we're going to cover a vast number of mri studies over the course of the podcast just because it's used so much in psychology um one study which i will at some point go into more detail of is the one that shows that if you take two identical scientific articles uh and put a picture from an mri brain scan in one of them uh kind of scientists and uh, journal editors will rate the one with the scan in as more scientifically valid and a better study, um, which might partially explain the massive upsurge in the number of MRI studies that are being done. Uh, Anyway, it took too long for me to work out how to summarize all the actual functional stuff, so I haven't got any interesting studies. For that, I turn to Tim. Okay, I'm going to talk about TMS. We have talked about it before on the uh, Wernicke's part of the Classics of Language episode, so go back to episode 9 for a fuller thing. Quick recap. Magnetism and electricity are basically the same thing. Your brain runs on electricity, so if you put a magnetic field on part of the brain, the electricity works better or overloads, so you can either stimulate or switch off a bit of the brain. See? That's how you do physics. (laughs) Gross simplification for the win. Um, well, I've already. I think I've already covered all the like the nitty gritty particular. Yeah, I'm not going to go too far into <laughs> it. Uh, although there's some stuff on the EM spectrum later. Uh, anyway, uh, I started my prep for this uh, earlier this morning by doing a quick search for transcranial magnetic stimulation. That's what TMS stands for. Uh, one of the first things that came up was an open source software for TMS. Wow. Uh, now We should download that. Yeah, not sure what it's going to do without the setup. I love what open source software, and I constantly look for, like, the alternatives to paid versions, If you know, because most of the time, if you can pay for it, someone will have put it out there for free. Not mm. illegally, but a freeware version. And indeed, mine and Ben's putative video project is basically reliant on me finding a decent one that works. Mm. Um, but... 
uh, there's part of me thinking that an alpha version of an open source software might need a bit more testing before being allowed to fire powerful magnetic fields at my brain. <laughs> this is actually going to this is very true and also going to turn to a slight recurring theme when we talk about EEG later. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, what can you do with TMS? Well, obviously the most common one is to switch off something big, uh, like speech. That's the, uh, sort of one that you'll read about in the newspapers or see on documentaries and was, uh, used in the matrix by agent Smith. Ah, what good is a phone call, Mr. Anderson? If I use TMS to make you unable to speak. Ah, that's why you're, you were practicing your Hugo Weaving impression. I understand it now. Yes, the full experience of Psychomedia can be experienced. Follow at TetrarchAngel <laughs> and at Team Psychomedia on Twitter. Also you, friend Tim Swan and Ben Fell on Facebook. Uh, you could maybe have practiced it a little bit more. Oh, I, I did a <laughs> much better one earlier, to be honest. I should have recorded it and then just put it in. Yeah. Well, you can Unable to speak. I just love the way he says it. Mm -hmm. Australians. <laughs> Anyway, uh, there's even a story about it in The Telegraph where, where it looks at uh, its impact on cricket scoring, uh, for which the Kinnias is strongly implicated. I jest, I'm just ripping off Russell Howard's material. Someone's TMSing my originality gland right now. <laughs> okay, I, I, yeah, because it was, again, one of those situations where I wasn't sure if you're joking or not. <laughs> <laughs> of course, singing is preserved when uh, speech is gone, uh, but no one told Neo that, because otherwise you'd end up with Matrix Revolutions, the m musical... <laughs> one of the things that the wikipedia article says because i did do a quick check of wikipedia see if there was anything i didn't really remember that you can do that most of it's quite boring uh it says it is difficult to establish a convincing form of sham tms to test for placebo effects during controlled trials of <laughs> conscious individuals due to the neck pain headache and twitching in the scalp or upper face associated with the intervention and what oh. i say to that is if you can't do it you aren't trying hard enough <laughs> uh, i mean they're they're that is actually slightly more of a valid point than they make it there, because along with the neck pain, headache and twitching, other side effects of TMS can include, um, once again, heating of the scalp. Um, and if it's anywhere near uh, frontal areas, uh, it can induce depression. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about the whole depression thing. Not like long, like, not like clinical depression, but it can make you sad. Consult your doctor before using TMS on yourself. Also epilepsy. The HDs don't count. <laughs> yes this is true um <laughs> but anyway so yeah the you'd have to stuff might be like it's not been substantiated enough that they would ban it well no i mean it, it's it's only if you use it incorrectly basically uh, yeah if you if you turn on and off a tms coil too rapidly you kind of activate deactivate activate deactivate areas of the brain and you induce a seizure um that that is true but you know most people go to the safety talk and therefore don't do this. Okay. <laughs> um, so maybe if you're receiving TMS, do ask to, you know, oh, did you go to the safety talk? Yes. I mean, they probably will have done. Probably. You'll probably be fine. Almost certainly, unless they're using open source software. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfully tested. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, what I want to zoom in briefly on, because you can use it as a kind of alternative for electroconvulsive therapy, that sort of thing. You can use it to test knockout feature. Um, I want to zoom briefly in on Snyder et al. 2003, TMS study that generated a lot of press uh, and a bit of controversy, I guess, in the TMS world, such as there is one. Hmm. Uh, although I heard it had its own uh, Radio 4 Longwave show. Uh, wait for one person out there to get that joke. Um, I just did. Well done. <laughs> well done. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I've got cricket on the brain. Uh, in fact, you it should might be unconscious it. priming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm anyway. not sure what part of the brain really is involved in cricket. Um, attentional well, centre, Zoltman, maybe. In Andy Zaltzman's case, all of it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, and what they did uh, with this quite novel use of TMS was uh, simulate savantism. Now, savantism, the technical term, is where someone who otherwise struggles um, has a really strong talent far beyond normal capacities uh, in areas such as drawing, memory, music, calendar calculations, and arithmetic. Uh, Mm. I'd be gutted if I got an acquired savantism such as is described here, and it was for calendrical calculation. Yeah, you're really missing it. That's not one that you can use to fight crime or become rich. No, no, I don't think it is. Well, except mm. that they can do stuff, calculations quicker than computers, but they, you only oh. really need a couple of them. You don't, it's not <laughs> one of those ones where, whereas memory skills, there's probably enough memory tasks to go around. Anyway, um, for example, the drawing stuff, you hear about it in case of autism, mm. you know, a completely accurate drawing of the Houses of Parliament or something, Yeah, having seen it out of a bus window. Um mm. But uh, although I mostly know about savantism in the cases of autism, can actually also appear after a certain sort of stroke and dementia. And so what Snyder wanted to do was see if temporary lesions caused by TMS could provoke savantism. So they stimulated uh, the... Actually, they didn't really stimulate it. They overstimulated and thus knocked out the left frontotemporal lobe which is implicated in savantism because the dementias where it appears is usually a frontotemporal type Mm. of dementia. Um, So quite different to the sort... Actually, no, that is the sort that's involved in Alzheimer's, isn't it? Frontotemporal. Mm. Um, I think so. And so then they had them complete drawing and proofreading tasks uh, because we all know that sub-editors are essentially mentats from the Dune universe. Mythical skills (laughs) in spotting rogue commas and very little other faculties. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure if that's really an appropriate joke. I don't know. It's about June. <laughs> about just think about Sting, and then you'll forget I've said anything controversial. Um, so what they had to do in the drawing task was draw a dog or a horse, and they also had to reproduce an image of a female face, having uh, seen it. You know, shown the photo, and then it disappears, and you have to draw it from memory. Now, uh, they after they drawn these pictures, the raters couldn't come to a consensus on the best pictures. But what they could agree on was clear examples of stylistic change when the TMS was administered. In general, the TMS made them more detailed, more complex, and more accurate. Uh, I'll put the de- examples in the show notes. Um, it's mm, not like, really they don't become miraculously brilliant, but they do mm. improve. And ah. um, they also showed enhanced proofreading. You know those right. annoying ones where there's two thes across like a line? Mm. Stuff like that. They noticed it when they were having this particular part of the brain knocked out. Uh, so that's pretty cool, isn't it? You can uh, improve those skills. Slight issue. Also experienced altered states of perception. Uh, <laughs> participant NR said he was more alert and conscious of detail that the experimenters had taught him how to draw dogs. And then he wished that he could have been asked to write an essay, something that he previously disliked. Because when he was stimulated, he became acutely aware of detail in his surroundings. Um, furthermore... The drawings of these three participants had not reverted to their original style 45 minutes after the TMS had ceased. So it is possible, the experimenters say, that the altered psychological states persisted beyond this time frame, or 
that the newly acquired schema was preserved, having been learnt under magnetic mm. stimulation. You can see why it's getting con- controversial. Yeah, I think, but I think, like, accepting it at face value, it's an amazing idea that you could mm. learn something as a savant and then keep it without suffering the deficits afterwards. Yeah. And indeed, they compare it to uh, the fact that amphetamines can trigger the same effect of oh, spiritism really? drawings. And, of course, mescaline was kind of key in cave paintings and other primitive art. So oh. they say it's like the safer, controllable version of mind-altering <laughs> substances. The final point I'd like to make... I can't see that end up ending up being a, like a black market in... T- well, actually, no. I really can't see yes, there being yeah. black. I had the, the image of a, a, you know, a guy in a trench coat like opening the coat to, to reveal like a rack of TMS <laughs> coils, um, which, uh, on the one hand, shows a, a great deal of lack of understanding about how drug dealing works. Um, but I think it's more likely to be just like a guy in an alley with a TMS coil. <laughs> Jewel wield. He's just looking at the <laughs> Sorry, I'm all on, all on the Matrix today. Uh, the last thing I want to say um, before we move on is that there is a great footnote. They've got these four participants who experience the altered states of consciousness. And it's like, AJ did not give a subjective report, which to me suggests that he gave one that was just far too objective. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have test- TMS to my brain, therefore my frontotemporal region is functioning differently. <laughs> Unhelpful. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so next up is EEG, which is probably um, vying with uh, MRI for most commonly used um, uh, imaging technique in psychology for a number of reasons. Primarily because uh, it's um, it's certainly a lot easier to use and less expensive to use than most of these other methods. Um, it's technology that's been around for a very long time and uh, is v- very cheap as you will soon see, to produce. Uh, EEG stands for electroencephalography. Um, and it's a very kind of simple and relatively crude idea uh, that the neurons in your brain carry electric charge. They're like little wires. And if you have a sensitive enough electrode, you can detect the charge that they are producing and measure it. Um, it's, it's really functionally no different from the electrodes you kind of implant into a monkey or a rat brain, um, except that you can do it in humans because humans dislike penetration. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, there is a, in, in practice, you can't just like stick a neuro, uh, an electrode over a bit of over, on the skull and immediately record clearly from the neurons underneath it. Um, the problem is neural electric signals are relatively small and there's this nitty gritty issue of there being the skull in the way bone is not particularly good for recording electric signals through um which is why as we've mentioned previously i think when people who are undergoing epilepsy treatment have their brains kind of exposed for the purposes of localizing the um the epilepsy psychologists pounce on them because they can not literally that would be a bit mean but um they they pounce the eeg coil is pounced upon them because uh, the electrodes uh can then be placed directly onto the brain um which is very useful uh but anyway uh when you what you do is you you put lots and lots of like 32 or 64 or whatever um electrodes over the over the whole skull um or head as it's also known um and you get from a single individual, you get an extremely noisy 
signal of electrical activity. Uh, so generally what happens in psychology experiments is you have to average over a large number of participants in order to get anything particular, anything meaningful um, or certainly anything kind of like finely tuned about different uh, components. What you're looking to measure in EEG is particular peaks and troughs in the signal which correspond to, say, a stimulus appearing. So, for example, there's one called the N170, which is a negative peak N occurring at 170 milliseconds after the presentation of faces uh, is the key thing that it's used with. Um, uh, however, so this is this is basically how EEG is used in psychology. Primarily, there's loads of studies with it. We'll probably cover many of them um, in future and possibly have done in the past. I can't bring any to mind. Um, what I was interested in when I was looking for this uh, EEG stuff was the fact that because EEG is relatively cheap to produce, uh, it's been picked up uh, as a commercial thing um, by companies. Um, because it hasn't happened with any of the other imaging techniques yet, really, not, has it? Not so much, uh, or, uh, apart from the, your open source TMS imaging. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so... Basically, although in order to get kind of fine-tuned signals, you need to average over many people, it is possible to detect relatively large-scale changes in brain activity on an individual basis. Um, so uh, there's a company, there, a number of companies have done this, but the one that I've come across is a company called Emotive, E-M-O-T-I-V. And they have produced a $300 commercially available uh EEG headset. Uh, it's only got 14 sensors on it, um, and they say it can be used for and in asc ascending order of lucrativeness, uh, <laughs> artistic expression, not very lucrative, disabled accessibility, slightly lucrative, gaming, pretty lucrative, and advertising and marketing, extremely lucrative. <laughs> um, what can it do in advertising? Well, they they're saying like companies will want to buy it put it on people while they're looking at their adverts on their marketing and use this to judge how effective they are. Um, they don't go into huge numbers of specifics. So they could do the IAT for that. They could do the IAT for that. Cheaper. Uh, much cheaper. And there are many companies in London that are going, uh, who use psychology for evil. I <laughs> Um Anyway, so I, I was actually really intrigued by this and having a look around the website because $300 is within the budget, my budget of stupid purchases. So, really? yeah, I mean, like, I, if, if I could convince myself that it would be amazing, it's the sort of thing that I could conceivably end up buying. Um, yeah. However, I was going to criticize you, but mine is about 250 euros and it's hanging on the wall behind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, the yeah so the headset itself looks very swish i mean it kind of does look like a sort of a cool gaming peripheral as you might get um but i was reading a couple of reviews of this headset it's called the uh, the epoc the epoc um neuro headset and uh, the main problem the reviews were not entirely positive um, mainly because it would seem that the just the sort of concept of thinking a particular thought like left thinking it really like specifically is not something we're very used to doing um 
certainly, I mean, you can train yourself to be better with these. And the, the Epoch headset actually comes bundled with like brain training software, including, incidentally, a mini game called Jedi Mind Trainer. Um, oh, Ben, why did you have to tell me that? I know. Basically, it involves a presumably unlicensed Yoda instructing you to levitate an X-Wing with the power of your mind. Um, so good. <laughs> I know. Have you seen the, uh, the Jedi Force Trainer that you can get? Which is, uh, you can get it from like gadget magazines and stuff. Um, it's essentially the same principle. You do get like a very, very small EEG headset and then like a, uh, a perspex tube with a fan at the bottom and a ball in it. And you connect the EEG headset to the to the uh, the tube, and then you concentrate really hard. And the harder you concentrate, the faster the fan goes. So the ball levitates. That is fascinating. It's I mean it's it's like a, a gimmicky toy, but it did look pretty cool. Um, Call me back when you can do force lightning. You know <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, this is the the Epoch headset, um, and I thought it was kind of cool that. Uh, they, that this is kind of commercially available, and although it, it you know, it's it's problematic at its current stage, it's interesting to see where this sort of technology will go. Um, however, I, I did a bit more looking into this, and given the fact that almost every review of the Epoch says that people struggle to get anything like reliable performance out of it, um, I was very pleased to see that the next major application of the unstable and difficult to use technology was driving cars. <laughs> um, <laughs> There is a group at Freie University or Universitat in Berlin um, connected one of these uh, emotive headsets to their specially set up Volkswagen Passat, um, which has, with characteristic German flair and originality, been named Made in Germany. Um, and they've apparently the, the car itself is part of a project to uh, in develop uh, autom- automatic autonomous driving i.e. cars that drive themselves. Yeah. Um, but they've previously investigated how people can control these using, like, iPads or iPhones or even eye tracking. Um, so presumably they decided to use the Epoch because they were fed up with saying I five times every sentence. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically they, they connected a car to an EEG headset and the person, you know, thought left and the car went left or they thought right and the car went right or they thought, like, forwards and it went faster. Um now, Tim, if you had invented the first mind-controlled car with, you know, difficult to use and unreliable um, results, where would you test drive it? I'm going to say the Champs-Élysées roundabout in Paris, <laughs> one of the most difficult traffic areas in the world. <laughs> You're not far wrong. I mean, is it because it's in France and not Germany that I'm wrong? It is primarily that, but conceptually you're on the right track. I mean, I personally, you would think they would go like somewhere out into the nice German countryside with lots of, you know, unpopulated roads and nice soft hedges. Um, Apparently, though, Raoul Rojas, the team leader on the Brain Drive project, thinks otherwise because they decided to road test it across the city to Berlin Airport. (laughs) and, and apparently there dead. were no casualties so that's kind of kind of good i mean it must be said that um because the car is set up for autonomous driving they weren't literally controlling you know how much to the left and right the steering wheel went they were just kind of giving it junction instructions like turn left here or turn right here okay uh, oh fair enough then uh, that's not as bad which is less bad than 
the inaccurate joke makes it sound. Um, it also means that what they have essentially done is reduced humans to the functionality of the sat-nav, um, which is slightly upsetting. Um, but, you know, probably the inevitable way that we're going. Um, so the last thing about EEG that I wanted to mention was that the most interesting thing I think I came across when reading about particularly this sort of emotive headset and these commercially available applications of it was miraculously in a YouTube comment section, um, if you can believe it. What? I know, right? Um, I was trying to think of an, an analogy for that, and the only thing I could come up with would it, it would be like discovering the world's most valuable diamond attached to like the tiara in a in a like Barbie doll set. Oh, that's um, good. That's good. Uh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't entirely convinced by it, but anyway. Um, so the video itself was of a slightly creepy looking young man uh, using the Epoch headset to control the movements of a Robo Sapien. Um, Robo Sapiens being one of those like all singing, all dancing, learning robots that are in every Christmas gift catalog since Furbies went the way of the dodo. Um, that in that they were eaten by Spaniards, um, <laughs> uh, but what th this guy was, this guy was partially successfully um, trying to control the uh, Robo Sapien using the Epoch headset. He he was good at making it go forwards, um, but when it came to more complex concepts like left or backwards, um, he basically sat there straining for a long time while the Robo Sapien like scratched itself and didn't do anything. Um, but the top rated comment on the video was from user Seminole PP who said, uh, surely in the future, our children will be laughing at us brain interface illiterate, just like how we laugh at our parents as computer illiterates. And I thought that was a, a remarkably and astonishingly astute, uh, kind of judgment of this because, yeah. you know, we, we all, uh, well, the generation, mine and Tim's generation, I expect most people listening are probably of that generation um are probably relatively familiar with the concept of computer illiterates as most of our family members will be them um but it's difficult to us to sort of conceptualize what we might be illiterate at and what our children might be better at because i mean we're so utterly immersed in technology on a day-to-day -day basis it seems relatively yeah. unlikely that we're going to get like bad at texting when we're older um, but I do like yourself. I'm bad at texting <laughs> as it is. <laughs> um, but I, I really like the idea of my future children, like despairing at my inability to only compose text messages one letter at a time on like a siphone. Uh, <laughs> I should really copyright copyright that name, by the way. Um, yeah. Good luck with intellectual property and smartphones. They're <laughs> supposed to be like the most evil IP lawyers in the world. Well, I do know an IP lawyer. Oh, do you? Yeah. Chez. Oh, really? Yeah, he works for an IP law firm, admittedly. So my, my previous statement is something I stand right by. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, so that's EEG. Uh, you can use it to drive cars, play games, and uh, move small toy robots. Also psychology, incidentally, but, you know, that's, yeah, that's not what this psychology. is about. <laughs> Let's let's upgrade the encephalography to the ultimate level. <laughs> EEG has evolved into MEG. That's right. It's magnetoencephalography, perhaps <laughs> the most advanced brain scanning technique. Uh, it was invented by um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who plays Gandalf. I've forgotten uh, his name. Ian McKellen. Yeah. Uh, Magnetoencephalography. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> 
Very funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. By which you mean get out. <laughs> well, I would say get out, but you're not here, so <laughs> <laughs> I am out. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it stands somewhere between fMRI and EEG, which Ben has helpfully led us through. Anyway, so EEG obviously measures the electrical activation directly. MEG uses magnetic detection on these electrical fields that the EEG looks at, because, of course, the two somewhat overlap. Uh, That's physics. Look earlier in the podcast for talk about physics or, you know, there might be a physics comedy podcast out there. I'm sure there's not like a BBC Radio 4 show or something anyway. Um, What really matters is how cool the device looks it is the world's greatest hat (laughs) Um, it really is i have been in one it's amazing i'd forgotten that you'd been in one but yeah i have i'll put a picture in there isn't a picture of you in it is there did you get someone to take a photo don't think there is no i i have i have a picture of my n170 Okay, well, um, we can, you know, if you want to send that through, who can put it in? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, we I, we were given a, de- a demonstration of the MEG, and I sat in it, and they recorded my brain activity looking at faces, oh. and I have a perfectly formed N170. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, what really also matters is in the, on the physics side is that it uses a squid. Uh <laughs> a squid in capital letters, not a squid. Uh, we use yeah, those. You sit in the chair, and the squid is lowered onto your head. Yeah, well, I was going to say, which is actually true. The key element <laughs> of squid research is how delicious is battered calamari. <laughs> no, squid stands for superconducting quantum interference device. Now, because I'm not a physicist and I read a lot of science fiction, that does sound like it should be able to do something pretty epic. I mean, it it, it can. Well, yeah. I mean, it, but I'm talking not, about not in science fiction terms. Also, it does raise the possibility of. Uh, using MEG to scan the brain of uh, a cephalopod and therefore being allowed to say, yo dog, we heard you like squid, so we put squids in your squid so you can squid while you squid. Yep. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah. but no, I think a squid should be able to distort matter or observe a cat through a sealed box or maybe make space-time play in 3-4. Of course, <laughs> the issue it is... It totally could. It could observe a cat through a, a sealed box. Oh yeah, so it could. Okay, I'm being dead. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thinking of dense, uh, there's the issue with our brain's magnetic fields. They are very, very small, uh, about 10 femtotesla. Now, given that femto is what, like it's less than pico, which is less than nano, uh, might even have one in between, uh, mm. basically. And uh, that's for cortical activity. Just for the alpha rhythm, which is what EEG measures, is 100 femtotesla. Uh, now, if we, uh, you know... Uh, compare that to just the ambient noise in a city is mm. a uh 108 femtotesla uh so what they need is special magnetic shields and so what we've created is a material that can shut out the noise of ipods hard disks fridge magnets secret maglev rail systems under the city sewers uh, <laughs> and all of the rest and just so we can focus in on the little ones going on in the human mind. Uh, these shields are mostly made of uh, something called memetal, uh, which was uh, developed by a material scientist with a stutter. <laughs> Everything's better with memetal. <laughs> yeah, but obviously, since the MEG is a direct measure of neuronal activity, it's not measuring blood flow and thus metabolism, its temporal mm. resolution is basically comparable with that of intracranial electrodes, but without having to cut the brain open. And it can do incredible things, as uh, the team, including Apostolus P. Georgiopoulos, Eliasus Karagiorgiou, and Angeliki Georgiopoulos found. Uh, can you guess where this study was done? That was a non-rhetorical question. 
okay, it was so non-rhetorical that I've managed to kill you. Um... Oops, I left my microphone off. Sorry about that. Yeah. My answer, for those who are interested, was Birmingham. Uh, close. It was Minneapolis. Um, it was not Greece. <laughs> oh, nearly. <laughs> so well done. You spotted that it was an obvious trick question. Um, we uh, basically, um, normally, to do a uh, kind of... Uh, diagnosis in psychology you have to use this variety of methods you can use fmri you can use psychiatric interviews these sort of things it's quite difficult to get a direct scan or that works diagnostically and so the georgeopolis team wanted to find was if you could use meg because it's this new type of scanning they'd already found that healthy people have this rhythm of activation in the brain um and so they got seven groups of people with different brain disorders, uh, healthy controls, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, chronic alcoholism, one called Schrugen's syndrome, which I don't know much about, multiple sclerosis and mm-hmm. facial pain, which I assume is a type of chronic facial pain rather than just if I gave you a slap. Um, <laughs> and the task was very simple. All they did was fixate on a spot while the MEG recorded. And then they used a complicated statistical technique called linear discrimination. Linear discriminant. (laughs) So complicated you can't even say it. Linear discriminant classification analysis. And it basically does what it says on the tin. It, you know, discriminates and classifies analytically Mm -hmm. using linear variables. Uh, It's also a very good wood sealant. Um, But what it uh, shows is that you can tell apart different groups based on the data. um, if you, and then you can compare them to obviously the correct diagnosis that you already have and it was spot on, 100% accurate just by looking at the MEG data you could tell by their clustering That's really cool. uh, and I'll put the graph in the show notes because you can just see just like healthy is here and then uh, for example uh, alcoholics are high on the one variable and low on the other variable uh, mm. and MS is the opposite and then schizophrenia Phrenics are kind of the opposite to Alzheimer's in terms of the brain rhythm. Now, the... So, sorry, go Oh, ahead. no, ask the question. Well, I, it wasn't so much a question as an interjection. Uh, the, the thing that we were always taught at undergrad about these different scanning methods was that uh, the major advantage of EEG, which I probably should have mentioned both of these when I was talking about them, and I didn't. The major advantage of EEG is its temporal resolution. Yeah. Um, you, can, you can essentially record brain activity in real time, Um the problem with it is that the spatial resolution is abysmal. You cannot really localize where any particular signal in EEG is coming from. Uh, uh, I mean, you can do sort of like very broad scale, like it's coming from the like the temporal lobe or the occipital lobe, but that's about it. fMRI, you have extremely high or well, relatively high spatial resolution. You can get down to, you know, um, fractions of a centimeter. Yeah. Um, but the temporal resolution is poor because, uh, as Tim uh, intimated earlier, it's dependent on blood flow and scanning takes time and it's dependent on how fast you can apply the magnets. And if you apply them too fast, then you like cause people to j- jitter uncontrollably. Um, so previously, if, you've, if you wanted to, to, both, to study something both in time and in space, you had to use both methods. The advantage of MEG is that what it has the same kind of temporal resolution as uh, EEG, yeah, and it also has much better spatial resolution. Oh yeah, sorry, I maybe between us we should have clarified that the MEG has two hundred forty-eight different magnetic detectors pointing at different squids. neural network. Yeah, squids, and so what you can do is measure this interconnection between them all uh, mm. and how they kind of correlate, how they they rhythmically relate to one another, and comparing them shows 
the differences like in the patterns of activation can show brain disorders. So they say this backs up this idea that the brain needs to be synchronized to properly mm. work. Uh, and I like that. It kind of suggests that thought has this kind of musical rhythmic quality. Um, mm. But what I'd like to do is try and compare it for other groups because obviously you've got to start with something like brain disorders and illnesses because that's a really key thing to know about. But um, mm. what if you looked at, say, personality factors, levels of neuroticism and the like, or, uh, you know, they point out that some diseases look very similar in their symptoms and have different causes. And they think that mm. this close look could show the really subtle differences between different things. I think that's absolutely yeah. incredible. So what, like, correlating, I don't know, uh, extroversion with, like, brain dis-asynchrony or whatever. Yeah, and there have been some attempts to do it so far, but without MEG, it's really hard to get the kind of temporal stuff going. Uh, yeah. And because personality is such a non-brain-centered area, mm. there's not many people doing the brain brain stuff off uh, personality anyway i've have homed in there in one study and it wouldn't really be possible in a form of imaging that wasn't so young you know ben didn't go and here is this fmri study that is a good example of fmri because it's just like there are millions probably well thousands yeah these two are both quite quiet aren't they i mean i assume meg must be if you yeah kids. meg is actually surprisingly um, pleasant to take part in. I mean, MRI, you, you lie down, you have headphones, you're clamped, all the stuff that I talked about earlier. MEG, you just go into a, a room, an electrically shielded room yeah. uh, with a big heavy door. You sit upright in it, which is a major advantage. It's like this big, white, kind of cool, smooth plastic chair. You sit in the chair and then the MEG machine kind of goes upwards from your head as you'll hopefully see in a picture in the show notes it makes you look like you've got like a giant brain hat on yeah um and it, it's just like a, a, a the head you you sit back into the chair it's like a giant hairdryer um with the hairdryer parts being the squids around you and you just sit there and stare at a nice widescreen tv um on the opposite wall or a projection thereof and do stuff and it's really comfortable yeah um I mean, you can't move too much because they've got to get like the, the, the squids as close to your scalp as possible. But it's yeah, it's it's really good. So, yeah. And then they found asynchrony and other disorders, both psychiatric and neurological. Um, Strite et al. 1999 used it to really clearly tell the time course of various bits of the brain getting activated during facial recognition of emotions, uh, both facial and emotional areas. Some come earlier on, some come later on. And you just couldn't do that with either fMRI or EEG. So they can hmm. show this flow through the brain of a very particular process, all the different bits. Uh, so I think that's really cool. The other form of imaging that does work with children, I'll say the full work name because that might be easier, near-infrared spectrometry or near-infrared hmm. imaging. Again, it detects hemoglobin levels because it's, so it's measuring blood flow. Big difference is they're portable, quiet, and wireless, which is pretty <laughs> amazing. Wireless brain scanning. Um, that is pretty awesome. What is it? I mean, EEG can be wireless as well. It must be pointed well, out. Yeah. The EPOC is wireless. But okay. But if you want a bit of spatial resolution, the near infrared is better. What is exactly. acknowledged is we don't quite know how light propagates through the head, which is probably huh. just because it's not something that normally comes up. If you're a physicist <laughs> or a you know kind of biophysicist imaging guy, you're like, oh, I wonder what happens if you shine a light through a skull. You know. <laughs> um, I actually, not a lot. <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for the uh, obscure bits of the spectrum, you know, like the terahertz region and that. You know, it's called <laughs> near infrared uh, because maybe no one had. No, I looked it up actually. I was trying to make this joke and then I did some research and it ruined the joke because apparently <laughs> near infrared 
is the sub bit of infrared closest to actual red uh, and actually acts pretty similar to uh, visual light, except for the whole we can't see it thing. Uh, did you know that our retinas are sensitive to ultraviolet? But I... all ultraviolet light is absorbed by the cornea, so we can't see it. Huh. So if we didn't I have didn't a cornea, then we'd be able to see ultraviolet light. Although we may have some other problems. <laughs> It's essentially Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> yeah. Um, pitch black. Yes. Oh, I was watching uh, Alien 3 uh, the other night, and there was a guy who had goggles, just like in pitch black. I was like, that's oh. weird. Do you reckon that's where the guy, you know, this Australian guy was just kind of sitting there watching Alien 3? Uh, mm-hmm. David Fincher movie, like, in fact. Perhaps one of his worst movies. It's yeah. fine, but it's not David Fincher. The next one is Joss Whedon scripted and directed by the director of Amelie and is supposed to be apocalyptically bad. Uh, I've heard that. But yeah, so uh, spectrum-wise, it's next door to heat on one side and red light on the other. And apparently that can see through the skull and see the redness of the blood. Um, just want to tell you, finally, 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 about this uh, little study that they did. Um, Targa et al. 2003 did a pretty standard visual study, but on infants that had never been brain scanned before. So we don't know how their brains were doing this visual processing. So we tested, we tested, he tested, uh, <laughs> she, they tested. Just, I've just always trying to get your name on a bit. paper, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I know. Last week or the week before, it was writing a book with the Dalai Lama. Slightly less, <laughs> slightly less prestigious, this one. Tested 20 infants, arranging in age from... Incidentally, Tim, the, uh, the Dalai Lama frequency is the frequency needed to flip the... Uh, <laughs> China has been developing it at weapons, as weapons technology. <laughs> yeah, let's step back from that, because I was thinking of some jokes as well, and they're all terrible. Uh, <laughs> and so they tested 20 infants ranging between two and four months okay i'm just going to read it as quotation so i will use the we obtained data from seven infant subjects the other 13 infants were tested but not included in the sample because of head movements producing large motion artifacts in the signals that's eight of them crying that's three of them inefficient attention to the stimuli that's one of them and failure in probe placement due to obstruction by hair one of them i was that child <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's Excellent. right. I was aged two to four months between 2003. Time, time is very complicated. Uh, see the back to previous episodes about Newcastle University professor for details. So yeah, also they said that 10 epochs of test and control trials were examined with each of the infant subjects. And I guess this isn't meant in the geological sense where epochs last <laughs> tens of millions of years. Well, they would, they would have aged a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it found that there was activation even in the two-month-old that is the same sort of activation to the same visual stimuli as adults which is interesting given that two months old children have certain issues with perception but there we go the two newest and babyish forms of neuroimaging which are the best ways to look at the brains of babies ah wow what a neat little ending there yeah Uh, I don't think there's really any conclusions to uh, draw because you know we've been talking about techniques rather than especially studies except as exemplars hmm. um well i mean i think the the point about these is that they're going to come up a lot and now hopefully you understand a little bit more about them we haven't uh, the only one that actually got like majorly explained was the mri because as mentioned previously i was using it for revision um <laughs> well, gave you a pricey of the rest and if by some freak chance any of you have the epoch headset um yeah. write in and let us know <laughs> yeah uh, other than that, uh, feedback to the show, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Do send in your uh, research uh, data if you've done it. I know oh, a few of yes. you have downloaded it. I'm not sure if we've had any back yet. So 
Ah, I haven't haven't checked the uh, the email. I should probably do I that. I checked it the other day. I didn't check it today. Okay. But, uh, we'll keep letting you have time to do that. Uh, and as always, come pester us on Twitter, Team uh, Team Psychomedia, uh, and Angel, yeah. the usual. Um, yeah. Back next week, hopefully. Hopefully, uh, I imagine we will at some point be taking time off of Christmas, but. Then again, oh yeah, won't. That's, that's when I could deploy the the uh, Franken podcast army that I have yet to build, but have the <laughs> raw materials to make. <laughs> you, you are preparing a mighty force of Franken podcasts. Um, yeah, much of which will potentially come from this week. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. So uh, now you know scanning. Um, go out and 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 look at brains. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. And as we look closely at the brain networks using the MEG, uh, we see how the major circuits connect. And, uh, oh, wait, that's odd. Uh, check the readings, Dr. Fell. Looks like, uh, yes, I- I'm sure of it. The, s- the psychology, comedy, and media circuits are absurdly correlated. But, but, but that, that, that means... Exactly, Dr. Fell. A dangerously high chance of an overlong podcast that walks the line, the very thin line between libel and humour. But this, but then, we must do the right thing. Yes, we must. Charging the TMS coils. Targeting. Targeting. Fire! Good job.